It's in the air more than ever during this time of organizational stress caused by the global pandemic. Mergers and acquisitions amongst INGOs. I noticed in the last couple of years already how longer-term funding landscape changes caused the beginning of an uptick, but now we may see much more of this. So who better to ask than two NGO leaders who lives to tell the tale? And more than once, in fact. I'm talking about Plan USA's head, Tessie St. Martin, and her colleague, Chief Operating Officer, Constantine Abarbiretai. In this episode of NGO Solon Strategy, I discuss with Tessie and Constantine what to watch out for as NGO leaders when considering or executing a merger or acquisition. Listen closely if you think this might be on your organization's horizon. Hello and welcome to NGO Solon Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfijken and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society and philanthropic organizations manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen organizational effectiveness. If you are in an international civil society leadership position or are aspiring to grow towards that, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. And today I am talking with Tessie San Martin and Constantine Ababiretai of Plan International US. And we are talking about a very uh, timely topic, namely the growing phenomena of mergers and acquisitions in the INGO community. And just to give you a quick lead in into why I came to this topic, um, I'm the co-author of a book that will be published next week called Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs. And in that, we have a chapter on mergers and acquisitions, as well as other forms of collaboration between and among INGOs. And in that chapter, we have a case study that was written actually by one of Plan USA's former COOs, on the acquisition by Plan US of the Center for Development and Population Activities, or CEPA. And so I felt in this era of the pandemic and the financial duress that is experienced by many INGOs, there is even more of an appetite amongst CEOs and executive leaders, as well as boards of INGOs, to um, explore the uh, potential of mergers or acquisitions. And who better to ask than Tessie and Constantine, who have led and managed two of those. And we're going to talk about those two cases. So first of all, Tessie and Constantine, welcome. Thank you. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. So let's give our, our, our listeners a couple of quick bios. So for Tessie San Martin, she is the CEO at Plan International USA. 
She used to be a group vice president at Apt Associates, a very well-known uh, U.S. consulting company. And before that, she was the director, director of operations at the World Bank's Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency. She was also a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And to my uh, um, delight, I had forgotten, Tessie, that you also have a PhD in political economy, nonetheless, at, uh, at Harvard University. So a very impressive CV. And Constantine is the uh, COO of Plan International USA. Before that, he was an independent consultant, including on mergers and acquisitions. He was also a division vice president at Apt Associates. So I imagine that the two of you maybe have uh, known each other from that time. And he was also the lead for international development practice work at both IPM, uh, I, IBM sorry, and at PricewaterhouseCoopers Consulting Company. So I see that you have had partially overlapping uh, careers. So let's start first by setting a little bit of the stage and let's start with the basics. For the relatively few amongst our audience who may not know of Plan International as a global INGO, Tessie, why don't you give me a brief description of your organization? Well, uh, thank you, Tosca. So Plan International um, uh, is a children's rights organization. Uh, we're very much focused now on girls' rights. Mm. And, um, and we have been in existence since 1937, uh, operate in 71 countries and mobilize uh, about a billion dollars a year in support of girls' rights and children's rights around the world. Um, one last thing I think is interesting about PLAN, it's certainly part of what spoke to me. It was created in the wake of the Spanish Civil War to yeah. help children that were being orphaned as a result of that. Um, and uh, so it's always had a focus on, on children and, and it started with a real focus on, on emergencies. So we're kind of full circle as we consider the global emergency that we're in today. Well, that's, that's actually a beautiful uh, image to start with. So maybe turning to you, Constantine, let's dive right into the profile of the two cases. Uh, so the two cases that, um, that um, I know Tessie's very, very familiar with, and I think, Constantine, you are very familiar with at least the second, if not both of them, are PLAN's acquisition of SEPA, as I said before, as well as the fact that PLAN uh, initially did an acquisition of and eventually transferred the ownership of the Women Lead Institute to another NGO. So maybe Constantine, would you like to give us a profile of one of the two, two cases? Yeah, hi Tosca, thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. So I can speak about uh, the Women Lead Institute, uh, which was a divestiture, um, because it happened when I was at PLAN. Um, so I'll let this speak to the, the rationale for looking at the divestiture. What is interesting to, to consider that in the not-for-profit space, uh, there's not when you acquire diverse, no, no money changes hands. Mm. So for us, this was quite an interesting situation because we were um, interested in the sustainability and in the success of this entity. Um, we decided that uh, the plan was not the, the proper place for, for uh, long-term success of this entity. And therefore, we looked at how can we find a better home for them. So very different from the commercial uh, transaction. And I do have uh, 
among the organization you mentioned at Pricewaterhouse, I used to work in corporate finance and mergers and acquisitions. So I do have that background. So very different from that background where you try to maximize, uh, you know, the the financial aspect uh, and maybe the strategic here, we're purely focused on the strategic and as well as in the making sure that uh, both the donor and the members of the group are happy with, with the outcome. So that uh, that's the transaction was a little bit different in that sense. Um, we still went through the full process as if it was a full commercial transaction, developed an, an info memo. Uh, we did due diligence. Uh, the acquiring party did due diligence. We had uh, uh, legal advisors involved and so on. Um, so I, I would say as a, in summary that while it was a, a, um, driven by the, the characteristics of a not-for-profit sector, um, so more strategic and donor satisfaction and uh, employee and uh, the team satisfaction, um, as well as with a strategic fit with the acquiring party, we still conducted it very much by the book as if it was a commercial transaction and we did all the things that we did, including Tessie starting with, I think, 12 or so potential acquirer mm, organizations. Mm. I'm on the case of the acquisition and buy plan of, of the Women Lead Institute and later the, the diversity, as you said, to another uh, NGO. Tessie, let me turn to you for a moment to the, for the motors. And then I would like to go back to Constantine and ask him to please unpack a little bit what Constantine, what you told us about due diligence and legal advice, etc. because there are many... Um, uh, members of our audience who, like me, are not experts in merchants and acquisitions, and it would be helpful to get a little bit more operational. But Tessie, how, what was the motive for that acquisition of the Women Lead Institute? Well, so what led to acquiring the Women Lead Institute was the acquisition of SEDPA. Now, and you mentioned that at the beginning, right? So SEDPA, we did that acquisition in 2012, um, and we did it again not driven by the financial motive. We were driven by a desire to augment our programming. Um, Plan at the time was uh, focused much more on girls uh, and at the time girls education, now girls rights. And SEDPA was uh, uh, one of the entities that had a long track record in terms of working on, you know, women's empowerment. Now, one of the elements that was part of SEPA was the Women Lead Institute. Um, Women Lead Institute focused on, it was actually a very well-run and designed program that focused on um, training and mentoring women NGO leaders uh, around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we found um, years went by is that we, you know, the so we were fundraising in support of children's rights and girls' rights. Um, and fundraising for the Women Lead Institute for that very uh, focused type of programming was not something that we were doing well. I see. And so the question then became, um, you know, all NGOs have limited resources. Yeah. We don't have a very large fundraising team. It's got a limited bandwidth. We had this ambition of really um, increasing greatly the amount of resources we were mobilizing for girls' rights. And our team basically said, listen, 
we, we can't do both, right? We can't support WLI the way we want to support it and at the same time meet the fundraising objectives that we have for our other programming. So we had to choose. And we realized that, you know, WLI was a program that was very good, but it wouldn't thrive under plan. And why we took the decision of doing a divestiture. And and to Constantine's point, and he'll explain a little bit more what was entailed, but I will say it was a significant investment on our end to do this divestiture. And Constantine said, no, usually you do that because you're going to get some money in return. Right. Get any money in return. On the contrary, when we did the divestiture of WLI, we also handed over to the acquiring NGO the donor and the money that wow. with it. So not only did we not take any money, we took money away from our organization to give it to another one. So, um, so uh, all to say that the fact that there's no money in these transactions is not trivial. One other quick observation, uh, Tosca. Um, you know, if you do mergers and acquisitions, you better be ready to do the vestitures. You can't have one without the other, in my opinion. Why? Because in my view, but Constantine is the expert, um, it's very seldom that you find another organization and you merge or you acquire them and everything fits perfectly well. I Chances see. Are it won't. Now, you can either let those assets be destroyed over time from neglect, or you can figure out where they can fit best so they continue to thrive. We chose the latter, but it cost us some money. Ah, Very interesting. Um, And so back to you, Constantine, now that I understand that the two, actually, uh, your acquisition of SETPA and your eventual diversity of Women Lead Institute are directly related to each other. Back to you, Constantine. Unpack for us a little bit at a more operational level, since you are, after all, a CEO, so exquisitely um, suited to to help us understand that. What is this about due diligence and the legal aspect? What should we be thinking about if we are managers or leaders? Yeah, and I probably should start by saying I'm not sure that a CEO should be or has to be familiar with, with these aspects. It just so happened that I had a previous experience, experience in corporate finance and M&A, uh, but I really think it's, it's uh, the, you know, the, the usual CEO in this space does not have that knowledge, which mm-hmm. is uh, a barrier in the sense that you need to acquire their expertise. So back to Tessie's point, you need to invest to acquire the expertise. Mm. So in the case of WLI, we're able to conduct many of the activities involved in the transactions ourselves based on my previous experience. So we developed, as I mentioned, uh, an information memorandum. We developed uh, financials. We developed a lot of information that was useful for the due diligence. Um, At the end of the day, you still need to acquire uh, legal expertise, so legal counsel. Now, that may or may not be available on a pro bono basis uh, because it's a more distinct task. I think that the problem for the sector in general is the absence of, uh, you know, the facilitators or the advisors. It's a whole industry in in, in called corporate finance um, that allows those advisors to be compensated. So in our case, we had to do that ourselves. I 
I would say, I think, and I hope we did it at a very high professional levels, but it was, as Stacey said, with a lot of investment. So just to close the loop on your comment about the COO, mm. I, I think it's very difficult. The COOs have a day job and this becomes a, a pretty much full-time job in addition to that to, to manage and, and basically be hands-on on these transactions. So yeah. um, there, therein lies a, what I would say, a, a barrier for which is beyond even the familiarity and understanding, but it's also the availability of resources and expertise required by such transactions in the yeah. NAFO Yeah, good point. And I will return to some of these barriers uh, later on in our conversation. So um, as a sector, um, well, we know from the research in the private sector that um, if a so-called distress sale is at the beginning of an exploration of a merger or acquisition. In other words, if one of the two NGOs, uh, which is considering a merger or acquisition, is in financial distress, is often not a good basis for um, uh, for such a merger or acquisition to succeed uh, later. Tell me a little bit um, about the catalysts uh, in the case of Plan and Setba, and why that mattered and what impact that had in general on these phases before, during, and after the acquisition by Planacepa. So maybe, Tessie, I can turn to you for that. But, well, um, but you're asking me to comment on, you know, how Setpa itself was doing? No, I, I rather would like you to comment on whether... Um, whether it is your sense as well as my senses from the research in the private sector that distress sales are often not a good foundation to get to a oh, yeah. successful merger. You're absolutely right. They're not. Um, my observation from the nonprofit world is that they're much more common in the nonprofit world because, um, well, again, uh, well, for many reasons. One of them is that um, organizations wait too long mm. to, um, you know, to see if there might be a better way of doing uh, what they should be doing, or they think that there's always money, you know, in the horizon, or they think that the mission is too important to let go of any, any number uh, of, of reasons. Um, I also think um, frankly, that part of the problem is that donors themselves don't take enough of a interest in the actual business, not just the program of mm-hmm. organization. Because if you think about who drives some of these transactions on the for-profit side, okay, well, the shareholders do. Yeah. You know, they, they're interested in maximizing their return. They don't think, they think that this organization is not performing well enough or that maybe in combination with or you know some other way it can be doing better but donors uh, and and so i'm thinking okay so who are the equivalent of a shareholder in the nonprofit world well donors are clearly to a certain extent the a shareholder an important you know stakeholder and if they're not interested in how the organization is doing financially in, yeah. in the efficiency of the organization, 
other than looking at the overhead rate, which we all know can be highly misleading, yeah. then, then that, that driver that exists on the for-profit side doesn't exist to the same degree, you know, on the nonprofit side. So I, you know, my own theory, I don't have anything to like back it up, uh, is that, uh, is, is that, you know, distress sales are much more prevalent in our sector that it, it is rare when a, um, transaction happens uh, with two organizations coming from a position of strength. You know, more likely you see Merlin being acquired by Save the Children um, when it's already kind of on its last legs. And by the way, that particular transaction went forward, as I understand it, because DFID, which was a key donor, yeah. interest in it and helped Save the Children be able to uh, deal with all of the problems of trailing liabilities and, and so on. So um, it is complicated. In the case of SEDPA, to go back to your question, uh, you know, SEDPA uh, was not doing great uh, by the time that, you know, we started conversations with them. In all fairness, they had started conversations with another entity and that hadn't um, that hadn't worked out. And so, you know, but by the time that we started talking to them, um, they were not as strong as they, you know, as they once were. So it, 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 it can be, you know, an, an issue. And, and it's a, a concern because you, you know, you shouldn't be, uh, it, it, put it this way, if you're, an, if you're a nonprofit leader and you're looking at acquisitions and the only thing that's out there are the things that are not great, um, you have to be careful, right? Because th- those things can come and haunt you. And rather than strengthening your organization, they can weaken it. Yeah. And at the same time, SEPA had had a stellar reputation for so many years as an extremely exactly. strong uh, gender and development organization. So a, a real asset uh, in, in every sense of the word. So why, maybe still staying with you, Tessie, um, because you have uh, left the private sector um, a little bit uh, longer time ago than than Constantine uh, did, Um, why um, do you think our sector has come relatively late at all to, to considering mergers or acquisitions? Why is it still relatively rare, even if we have been seeing a slow but steady uptick in the last five to, to eight years? Yeah, good question. Um, I think some of it goes back to uh, what Constantine said at the beginning. There's no money changing hands. Mm. And, and when money doesn't change hands, um, it, uh, well, that brings a host of you know, complications. Um, if you're actually acquiring something and there's no money changing hands, then you can't do things like you can do in the private sector, uh, clawback provisions that allow you to protect yourself, you know, where, where if. Would I, you mind just I, explaining that term? Because I don't know what that means. And I suspect some of our listeners won't either. So Constantine is the expert here, but uh, a clawback provision is, so say, for example, I'm acquiring, well, in the case of SEPA, I'm acquiring SEPA, okay? I'm acquiring um, a number of agreements, right, that come with it. Now, those agreements, right, have to be novated. They have to be reassigned to the acquirer. Okay. But what if 
not all of them get assigned. What if, you know, one donor, you know, decides that it doesn't want to necessarily uh, transfer the whole thing? Or what if it's transferred but not perfectly and it's transferred with a few more liabilities? What happens when there are surprises, in other words? Got it. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, no, sorry. So I was going to say, so a clawback would be, you know, you, you put things in the contract that says, if there are surprises, I'm going to want some of my money back. Right. Got it. Yeah. Constantine, would you like to jump in here too with your expertise? Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, continuing from, t- from Tessie's uh, enumeration, I mean, obviously the, the lack of uh, funding, money changing hands, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big impediment. The other thing I think has to do with the uh, characteristics of the, the not-for-profit sector, and I'm sure Tessie would have said what I want to say now, which is, you know, there's this emphasis, and I actually, she mentioned, she made a reference to it, to the mission. So in the for not-for-profit sector, mission is it's paramount, it's the most important thing. Uh-huh. So then the question becomes, how do you merge two missions? And the mission may, be, may, may sometimes uh, get a different dimension, let's say a secular versus a faith-based. Right. Uh, you know, versus, uh, let's say, in a different uh, approach, focusing on children as in services provide provision versus uh, advocacy and children's rights. So those are things that are are difficult to to merge uh, or you have to take a very strategic view of them to see how they can lead to to greater impact in the field. And I don't think we have that. And when you say mission, then you immediately have brand. And maybe you have a founder who, you know, funds, uh, establishes an NGO and he or she is fully identified with that. And there's a brand and there's a mission. And that makes very difficult this, uh, you know, this discussion about uh, uh, margin acquisition. The other part that I, we, I, we should be very clear is that, see, in the private sector, and Tessie mentioned this, is it's, you, you have these very clear indicators, profit being one of them. Mm-hmm. So the financial indicators are very clear. It's easy to compare apples to apples. In, the, in our sector, and especially when we talk about international development, you know, even when you say, oh, let me know what's your cost per beneficiary. Well, I can have a cost per beneficiary when I'm in a middle level uh, developing country, uh, when I can reach, let's say, using digital uh, solutions, I can reach many, many beneficiaries. Um, so the cost per beneficiary goes down versus I'm in, a, let's say, in Burkina Faso or in Niger, like we're looking right now at a situation where there may not be penetration of uh, mobile uh, phones. So how do you reach? So it's very difficult to say, oh, this organization is not doing well financially. It's very difficult to compare apples to apples based mm. on the huge diversity of the environments in which we operate. Yeah. And um, therefore, you know, it's, it's difficult to bring the discipline that I think it is that, you know, with, with uh, a for-profit uh, entity brings and incentives for mergers and acquisitions um, versus we don't have that in, the, in our sector. Very, very interesting. Staying with you, Constantine, for one more question around how to, uh, how to lessons. So what in your mind are the, in the nonprofit context are the most important um, operational issues to address before during and after implementation. I'll, I'll come later with some questions around governance, 
executive teams, culture? Well, so I would say, uh, not to pantotesi, but I would say that it's mostly, I mean, the, the issues that you mentioned are not, how shall I say, they're not deal killers. I mean, sure, they in theory, they can be, but you can find solutions to them. I don't think uh, they are the the driver or the the big stumbling, but they can become a stumbling block. But I think the the issue, the, you know, the, the strategic fit, the the alignment of mission, um, the two CEOs, uh, uh, the board's alignment, those are important things. For all the others, uh, you can find solutions, you know, that's why you hire. And then back to my point that I don't know if CEOs in our space need to have the knowledge, but there are people, there are experts, advisors who come from the uh, corporate finance, uh, mergers and acquisition space that can quickly tell you, in the, I, I've done 15 deals, here's the situation that I've done there, is there something that would work here? So they can come with a, with a toolbox that can find mm-hmm. solutions. As long as NGOs have access, as you said before, to those kind of specialized that advisors, is, right? That, I think that is a big, uh, big uh, stumbling block. Yeah, yeah. Actually, let me ask, uh, maybe back to you, Tessie, at what stage and how does one optimally involve important donors? In these types of transactions, um, well, uh, honestly, uh, it, well, and I'm assuming that you mean the the yes, the the ones that are uh, gonna be affected because they 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 yes to reassign the agreement. Yeah, you gotta do that uh, pretty early on um, uh, because that can be a de- you know, talk, you know Constantine just said deal killer. That can be a deal killer mm. if uh, and and this happened in the case of uh, SEPA. Um, there was um, a key donor and a key agreement. Um, getting uh, the buy-in from that donor and so giving them a heads up that this is happening. And so we're gonna be reassigning and and uh, giving them uh, an opportunity to get comfortable uh, with plan and so on. Yeah, that was that was huge. And as soon as we were able to do that, and the donor said, "Yeah, no problem," then we all breathed a sigh of relief because yeah. that that was critical. Do you do you think maybe still with Tessie, uh, staying with Tessie? Do you think that there are uh, donors, institutional donors, or high-wealth individuals, do we have sufficient number of donors who are willing to also fund some of these transaction costs of exploring a merger or acquisition um, and working through it, coming to decision-making, and then implementing? I haven't seen enough of that. I haven't seen donors that are willing to do that. Interesting. I go back to they don't, you know, their interest is in program. It's not actually in things like, you know, the financial health of the these or the sector as a whole. So that means then that for the time being, NGOs have to pay this out of unrestricted resources. We know indeed in the case of Save the Children and Merlin that DFID was actually uh, heavily involved in the beginning and also was willing to fund part of the transaction cost, but that is exceedingly rare than you're telling me. And, uh, and Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we also discussed that case in the chapter in our book. So let me turn to some kind of higher level, but I think pretty potentially sticky issues around the 
governance dimension, the staffing dimensions, and leadership and people aspects, of course, of mergers and acquisitions. Um, who would like to jump in first on that? Um, well, I'll start. Um, yeah, all hugely important. Uh, it's a dance. Um, and you just have to get uh, comfortable because, um, you know, you have to almost, you, you, well, you have to like, like each other. I, I mean, I remember the, <clears throat> the first time because the, the SEPA opportunity actually came through um, somebody else that I had mentioned, hey, you know, I'm interested in, you know, exploring whether there are entities out there that would, with uh, which we might merge to acquire, you know, more expertise on the whole, you know, gender um, mm -hmm. aspect, which was becoming more important to plan. And so they um, put me uh, in touch with um, Carol Peasley at the time, the, the CEO of, of SEDPA, um, who is today the chair of our board. So right. there's, there's, a, there's a merger that went well. Um, and, um, and so, you know, I remember, uh, getting together for dinner with, uh, Carol and her, um, two, you know, sort of key, uh, senior executives and, you know, the same thing on our end. And so that went well, and, and then you go from there, but, but just finding, you know, the, the personal stuff. Um, particularly again, if there's no money and you can't, you're not going to entice people with anything other than, exactly. you know, I think we can work together. I believe our missions are aligned. I think, you know, it, there has, it's a, it, it is very much a faith-based process and, and trust is a giant aspect of it. Um, so I, I, I would say, uh, hugely important. The same thing, honestly, with the boards themselves, right? So the CEOs can agree. Um, the, the staff thinks it's a good idea, but at the end of the day, the board is the one that decides. And, uh, and, and, and um, being able to, um, you know, pitch this to both boards uh, is hugely important. And then thinking through what it might mean for the joint governance is hugely important. Is, is yeah. Uh, Constantine, would you like to uh, compliment? Yeah, just to add that uh, since I joined plan, Tessie and I have been looking at various uh, potential, let's say, mergers and acquisitions. So we're a little bit familiar with what's going on in the space. And it's interesting to see um, that in certain cases, there's not an alignment between management and the boards. Mm -hmm. Uh, or even within the board. So we've seen situations of that nature and uh, that's not conducive. Again, and it's because it's not one metric, it's not profit or it's not a big strategic goal. Um, there are different versions or different shades of gray here. The chair of the board may see one color, members of the board see uh, different nuances, management sees a totally different color. So that leads to a very... Uh, I would say, or poorly executed or not ideal outcomes. Mm. Um, so that is important for a transaction to be successful. I would say all key stakeholders need to be aligned. Now you can do that, as Stacey was saying, you know, if you have a financial, financial means, you can align them. 
you know, with uh, incentives of all kinds, mm. uh, where otherwise is not possible strategically and so on. In a merger, you know, and Tessie and I also have been through, we've been um, objects of, or I should say, employees in mergers. Uh, but I'm thinking of the merge of uh, when IBM acquired PwC Consulting, and you could see there the clash of cultures, mm. uh, tremendous clash of cultures between what IBM was at the time on manufacturing and sales and research company and PwC were a strategic consultant, PwC Consulting. You don't have that so much in our space. If you look at international development, I think we're sort of all cut from similar class. So, um, but it's obviously organizations develop different cultures. The leader of the organization creates a certain culture. So those are important things that you don't see them necessarily at the time of the acquisition or the uh, transaction. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, you can see it. If I'm an observer and Tessie and other CEO meet, I can see immediately differences. I, it's, uh, sometimes it's visible. Um, but I think what's important is to, um, in absence again of the financial uh, incentive, to, cre- to make sure that the strategic value is clear to everybody and people get behind the strategic value. Yeah. If there's no strategic value, I think it's very difficult because at the end of the day, people think, I think, through two uh, dimensions, you know, is it good for the organization and then what happens to me and my job and, and my work. So you need to address that for key stakeholders. So you need to bring senior teams and you need to drive with uh, what's the strategic you know, value here. Yeah, yeah. Maybe one observation I'll make to get a quick comment from you, and then we'll move to our last uh, substantive question. Um, And that is that it is my perception that both board members and senior staff uh, who are impacted by a potential merger may have their personal identities wrapped up in their work, uh, which we can get in the way of looking at mergers or acquisitions in a more or less objective way. The same with other forms of self-interest. And in addition to that, there's also this pervasive, I think not always warranted belief system that every NGO is unique. Do you care to comment about that from the point of view of what, to what extent these factors, these less tangible factors play a role in the chances for a merger acquisition exploration to result in a good outcome? Tessie, go ahead. I think, well, you expressed it beautifully, Tosca. I don't have anything to add to it. I think it's absolutely a valid observation, of course. And, and again, that happens in every organization, for-profit and non-profit. But if, again, if you don't have any money, if you don't have any other way of aligning people, um, then that becomes that much more important. Constantine, what do you say? Well, what I would say is that it's very interesting that as a newcomer to the not-for-profit sector, I right. do believe that there's a, a significant emphasis, and I think his historical basis on how NGOs are created and driven. But I would say, you know, so it may be that, for instance, if I'm senior manager and I'm, let's say, in the WASH space and and you're in the WASH space in the the other organization, I'm going to say, oh, Tosca doesn't know WASH. Let me tell you what WASH is. And this project that Tosca implemented, oh, my gosh, was a big failure. (laughs) So I can do that. But at the end of the day, I think that the metric should be, and this is, I think, should be sort of the disciplining metric for the not-for-profit sector impact in the field. So what is it, how can the two organizations get higher impact in the field? 
doesn't matter Tosca's solution or Constantine's solution or Tesis solution, uh, you know, what, it, what does work best there? And again, with uh, being mindful of the uh, idiosyncrasies of uh, the specifics of, you know, Niger versus uh, Vietnam or the Philippines, you know, so things of that nature. But I do think that there, there's a lot of, of that. But I think it's also, and in a way, maybe COVID will, will, will prove the, the disciplining mm. factor. Um, you know, we may be forced to, to look into how do we have higher impact in the field. Mm. And that cuts across through the entire organization, not just programmatic operations and everything else. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So for our last substantive question, let me, let me pivot entirely. Let's put it, this on its head by asking you, as you know, there is an increasingly vociferous and longstanding critique from parts of global civil society that global North-based NGOs like PLAN and many others are dragging their feet when it comes to what here in the U.S. often is called localization, uh, by others often referred to as shifting serious resources and power to the South. In my view, one could also argue that the merger of two global North-founded NGOs will only contribute to this already growing trend of what I sometimes, uh, this growing trend of concentration of resources in large NGOs. And sometimes I like to call that tongue-in-cheek, the Walmartization of our sector, right? To what extent, when we're honest with each other, do mergers or acquisitions actually contribute to this growing conglomerization, this concentration of resources? What do you think? Tessie? Um, Well, wow, that was a pivot. (laughs) (laughs) But um, so a couple of observations. Um, You're right. It could, it could lead to that. And if uh, you had asked me this question before the COVID pandemic, I would have said, yeah, you know, that's possible. But my view is that uh, COVID-19 has shown us the limits of the um, essentially 20th century model that, Mm. you know, for delivering assistance uh, of any type, right? Because what happened during COVID? Well, everything stopped, everything stopped. Uh, and mm-hmm. including, you know, certainly travel within countries. And so that model of, well, okay, we've got the expertise here and then we send it there. Right. That couldn't happen. But even within our own countries, right, and as we were looking at our own country offices, they themselves could not move from their headquarters in Addis or uh, Nairobi to the communities because all travel within the countries also stopped. Mm. So we've all built all of this big um, infrastructure um, to serve a certain model of delivering assistance. And uh, suddenly all of that was paralyzed. Yeah. The only thing that counted, the only thing that counted were local organizations on the ground. Right. Actually get to where they were going. So, You know, my view is that the opportunity that we have now uh, in thinking about mergers, acquisitions, strategic alliances, is an opportunity to rethink entirely how we're organized Hmm. Um, and and really facilitate a process of, yeah, 
for sure, localization, right? We've been wringing our hands about it for decades and yes. anything about it. Well, guess what? The only ones that counted were the local organizations. So of course we need to do that. In fact, we need to accelerate that and we have to be thinking about how we partner with, with others here and over there to rethink uh, you know, remote delivery, digitization, all kinds of things. So, um, if all, so I would say, if if anybody's out there thinking, let me get two big northern NGOs together, and suddenly that's going to be more powerful. I think that's just uh, you're smoking something because <laughs> it's not going to serve you well in the world in which we're in today. I may, be, I may myself be deluding myself, uh, you know, uh, ascribing uh, too much of a historical moment here, but I, I believe I'm, I'm right. So um, mergers and acquisitions, strategic alliance should be helping us uh, reinvent ourselves. And that means doubling down on things like localization, which is mm. something that should have happened a long time ago, needs to happen now. I'm very glad I asked the question and I'm sorry that I threw you that, that provocative <laughs> question, but Constantine, you have the last word. Would you like to add to that on this question? Oh, uh, yes, definitely. So what I would say, I mean, I fully agree with Stacey uh, that uh, the COVID basically forces us to, to look in the mirror. And, and the question is, what's the, what are we looking at? What, what are we trying to improve? And I think we are trying to increase impact in the field. And that's, you know, the question is, how do you deliver in times of COVID is who's prepared best to deliver no matter what happens in our world here. You know, we may be not allowed to travel from the U.S. Uh, as of the date of this interview. Yeah. Um, so we, you know, we, we need organizations need to find solutions. So there are solutions for what? What's the driving question here is how do you increase impact in the field? So to me, such large INGOs mergers, actually, if they are driven by the right uh, you know, question, they will lead to increased efficiencies, as Tessie was saying. And I know we're not supposed to do uh, promotional uh, uh, commentary here, but you know, we at PLAN are actually doing that. So Tessie has been pushing us and we're trying our best to be able to transform, use, uh, use the COVID challenge and transform the way we, we do our, both our work here in the U.S., but also how we deliver in the field. Mm. So watch, watch plan International USA. <laughs> Interesting. Well, um, we have to bring this, uh, th this uh, recording to, to an end. So let me ask you, this was extremely uh, stimulating. Thank you. So if our audience wants to learn more about you, Tessie and Constantine, where should they go? Tessie? Well, um, go to the plan website, you know, www.planusa.org. Um, there'll be, there's lots of interesting things there, including, uh, you know, blogs, technical newsletters, and so on that tell you more about what we're doing. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and um, I am also on Twitter, you know, at Tessie underscore plan. Okay, we will put all of that in the show notes. And I also remember, Tessie, you wrote a blog some years ago, right, on the particular, the acquisition of SETPA. Yes. So with your permission, I will also add that to the, to the blog, uh, to the show notes. Yeah, is it okay? Constantine, where uh, can people learn more about you? So I'm, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I can be reached at uh, 
first name, that last name at planusa.org. <laughs> Ah, you're gonna... <laughs> you're even. And now we will we will uh, do that appropriately in the in the in the show notes. But you're you're open to people contacting you on on email. It sounds like sure. That's that's uh, that's wonderful. Well, thank you so much um, for, to the two of you for the wonderful insights. Um, and this is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to NGO Soul and Strategy. If you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find posts on topics related to what we discussed today. That's five, as in the number five, oaksconsulting.org. You can also find free white papers there, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about the upcoming book Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, of which I'm a co-author, and which will be published in June 2020. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org and follow me on my social media channels, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to leave a review on iTunes or any of the places where you get your podcasts so that others can find it too. So, until we talk again, this is Tosca at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for leaders who look change right in the eye.